All right, everybody. So we have John Meadows with us today. Uh, most of you listening probably know a lot about John, and he is a professional bodybuilder. He is the founder of MountainDogDiet.com. He's been doing this for a very long time. So welcome, John. Glad to be here. And uh, so for every one of these, you know, I make a donation to charity. And you said to me, you wanted one that was kind of based on an animal-related one, animal shelter. And so I'm going to make the donation to Fur Kids. Uh, but can you just briefly explain why you chose that area? Well, I'm, um, man, I'm a big animal uh, advocate. I love animals. And as you can tell from the, my, the nickname I have, Mountain Dog, that's after, uh, that name actually comes from the Bernese Mountain Dog breed of dog. Okay, cool. But, um, I just love animals, man. And I don't think uh, as a society we take care of them and treat them right. And so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. Okay, great, great. And uh, big question for you. I know you're a Marvel fan. So who is your favorite Marvel character and current favorite Marvel movie? Oh, let's see. I just saw Venom. Um, my favorite Marvel movie would um, probably be The Last Avengers. I mean, yeah. it had Thanos in it. I was a very, very big fan of that arc for many, many years. I had the graphic novel uh, many, many years ago, and I was talking about Thanos, and I was saying that Marvel... They just, they're missing the boat. They're not doing one of the best stories of all time. And here we are many years later. Yeah. And the whole buildup was, was toward the Thanos theme. So I've always been a big fan of Thanos and Galactus. Galactus would be my other favorite, which is, okay. which by the way, was the most disappointing Marvel movie was the original Fantastic Four where. Yeah. I know it gets hate on so much. I didn't personally hate it, but I know it does get a ton of hate. The reason why I hated on it is because their portrayal of Galactus. Like, you didn't really get to learn anything about him. He just came at the end. All you saw was a cloud. Right, right. And Galactus um, was an awesome story. The Thanos and the Galactus stories are the two best Marvel stories. Um, my favorite. So those are the two. Those cosmic-powered villains I kind of like. Yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I like to get a little bit of people's backgrounds and – um, we know you've been doing this for a very long time, but could you kind of just like break down the John Meadows story? How did that, you know, that passion for bodybuilding really get ignited? Well, it started at a very young age and I did my first competition in 1985 uh, and I was born in 1972. So it didn't take me long to, to start competing. I just uh, looked at magazines basically. And I, I was a, I was a pro wrestling fan. So I mm -hmm. used to, go to the grocery store and sit on the floor and look at the pro wrestling magazines. Like I, you know, I see the road warriors and, you know, all these guys from back in the day, but the, the bodybuilding magazine specifically was muscle and fitness back then was right next to the pro wrestling magazines. So mm -hmm. one day I just said, Hey man, that looks kind of cool. So I picked up a muscle and fitness and I looked at it and there was Lee Haney. There was, uh, you know, some of the guys from back then and, I just really liked that look. I thought for some reason at that young age, it really clicked with me. I thought, man, I'd really love to look like that. So I started learning about working out. And the thing was, was I already had a really, really uh, high, high work ethic. Um, in gym class, I was trying to do the most push-ups and sit-ups. Mm -hmm. um, when we had run, I would, I was, 
I was in wrestling. I was in all these sports. So I, I'd practice really hard. I'd get home and eat. Then I'd go back out and run some more just on my own. Um, I mean, I was very, very disciplined back then with exercise and all that stuff. I didn't really know anything about bodybuilding, but I loved to do push-ups and sit-ups and run and all those things. So when I saw the kind of the bodybuilding uh, piece of it, I thought, oh, that's cool too. I can lift weights and get muscles and look like that. So I was immediately hooked. And um, it never um, it never went away. I mean, I'm not – at that point, that was many, many years ago, there was never a period of time where I just said, you know what, I don't enjoy weightlifting anymore. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I've, I've loved it ever since then. I can't imagine not working out. Um, I didn't compete this year, but I, I didn't miss any workouts this year. I mean, I – I, you know, people that know me would tell you that the competing part had nothing to do with anything for me. This, the training part that I've always enjoyed. And a lot of people say that. Yeah. I really wonder if it's really true or not. But I truly, in 30 some years, um, have loved training, really enjoyed it. Um, competing or not competing, I don't care. I just love to train. Awesome. Um, and something that I think, uh, you know, I know just because I've followed your work for a while, so you talk about it in a few articles, but I think some people, newer to your work might not know is you had your colon removed. Um, and obviously, you know, nutrition and all that is a huge part. And we talk about gut health a lot in this field. I think it's becoming more and more popular. So how did that happen and how has it affected your bodybuilding? Well, it happened in 2005. I was uh, preparing for the Mr. USA and I was doing my morning cardio, which consisted of walking outside and I started getting these really sharp stabbing pains in my stomach. And I didn't know what they were. Uh, but they got worse. They got worse and worse and worse. And I um, I got to the point where I really couldn't eat hardly anything. I mean, I would eat maybe two ounces of fish and mm. maybe a handful of oats was all I could eat. So I competed that year very, very sick. Um, at the USA, I think I probably got 12th or 13th. And I, you know, I thought it's just stress related. When I get home, this is all going to go away. Yeah. So I got on the airplane, I got home and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I'm going to feel better. Well, I woke up and I had to, um, my wife actually had to take me to the doctor. She was like, this is bad. Like your face is pale and you know, I normally have this red face. And so she was like, we're going to see the doctor. And, you know, I'm uh, my doctor's Dr. Serrano. I'm not sure if you're mm -hmm. familiar with him or not, but he's an yeah. uh, awesome dude, extremely knowledgeable. So Serrano, when I walked in the office, he looked at the nurse and said, call the ambulance right now. He didn't even say anything to me. So the ambulance came and they took me and um, I got to the hospital and that began all the diagnosis and they were um, they were not helpful at all. Um, they said I had constipation, and I said, they can't be. I haven't been eating. And they basically gave me some uh, – they said, well, you're having an ulcer attack. And I have a little bit of a medical background, and I was like, I don't think so. Like none of the symptoms I have match – or not ulcer. I meant to say colitis. Um, none of the symptoms I have match – colitis at all, maybe some kind of ischemic colitis, but definitely not any kind of ulcerative colitis. So I kept telling them that. I kept telling them that over and over, and they kept saying, you're going to be fine. They gave me Azacol and all this stuff that's supposed yeah, to help yeah. with, you know, and none of that worked. N not even, I couldn't even tell I took anything. 
So I um, went home. I had to go back again, and I went home, and I had to go back again, and this is all happening like day after day. And then the third day, my wife was very adamant. She's like, I'm not uh, – he's not leaving this hospital until you guys figure out what's wrong with him. And then um, to, to keep it clean and not get too gross, I started losing a lot of blood. Yeah. And the nurse was like, wow, maybe this is a big deal. And she took off running. I remember she – next thing I know, they were fat, wheeling me as fast as they could into, into, into emergency surgery. And they did the emergency surgeries. And so that began the second round of what really happened to me because at that point, we didn't have any answers. So they were doing batteries of blood work. I remember them coming and taking like 15, 20 vials of those those tubes. Yeah. Like yeah. every six hours, it would seem like. They just kept taking more and more blood. And I remember getting a, a transesophageal electrocardiogram, I think it's called, where they stick the camera down your throat. And yep, yep. Uh, they stuck the camera in my hip. Oh, no, his digestive system looks like an 18-year-old. I remember them specifically telling me that. So they tried all these things. And the end result was we don't know what happened to him. But they sent a tissue biopsy of my colon to the Mayo Clinic. And the Mayo Clinic said, we know exactly what this is. It's, it's uh, idiopathic myoentomal hyperplasia of the mesenteric vein. I'd never heard of that. Sure, and sure. Um, my doctor, who knows, he was very intelligent, the gastroenterologist that I knew, he'd never seen a case of it. But I looked it up when I got home. And all the symptoms and the cases, I was like, that's it. That is what I had. Like, it matched exactly what I had gone through. And so, you know, I had my colon removed. I had some issues. Um, But long story short, um, I'm fine. I can eat whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I just have to know where the bathrooms are, right? So I don't have the, you know, I have a very fast transit time from the time food enters into me. Uh, until the time it exits. So I just need to know where bathrooms are. But other than that, I don't really have any limitations. I did have a lot of surgeries where they cut right down the middle of my abdominal wall. So the linea alba and the fascia is pretty much destroyed. I had a very unique surgery done where they took uh, stitching and they literally stitched my abs together and pulled them together. Um, It was so bad I had diastasis recti, really bad. Uh, so the surgeon pulled my abs together, and so my my abs are kind of held together by stitching now. So they're they're still to this day not real strong. Yeah, yeah, they don't look real good. If you look at pictures of me now versus before the surgeries, you can definitely see the difference where they look better before. But um, hey, man, I'm alive and it's all good now, and I can, like I said, I can pretty much do whatever I want. Awesome, yeah, and I think that just shows your dedication to this. That not only did you do still do that competition with that stuff going on. But, you know, you didn't let this deter you from your bodybuilding dreams in general. So, uh, yeah, it was tough, man. I mean, um, I was told, you know, you can pretty much forget competing. Like you can't train your your abdominal wall. You're going to I got a lot of scars. They're like, yeah, you can pretty much forget competing. And my doctor was the the one, though. He said, I don't know, man. He's like, I think you might be able to do okay." Yeah. And I didn't care what anybody said. I was going to do what I wanted to do. You, you know, I'm a little stubborn. Yeah, sure. So I thought I'm just going to compete. And if it looks absolutely awful, then I'll stop competing. But I'll continue to train. Um, but we'll see. So I actually competed when I still had that diastasis recti and it looked horrible. And uh-huh. I was like, I was like, okay, I'm done. And my doctor said, I got one more thing I want you to try. There's a surgeon I know who's, who does this. It's very unique. 
Um, and I don't even know if he'll do it on you. Um, but he ended up doing that surgery on me. And then when I dieted down the next time, people are like, it doesn't look perfect, but you can still compete at a high level. Um, you may not win, but you'll still look good and you won't look like you won't look terrible. In other words, All right, right. Like, okay, cool. I won't look terrible. All right. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty motivating. So, um, so I, I, uh, kept competing and I can, and then I actually started to make progress like the rest of my body, not my abs. Yeah. The yeah. Rest of my body started to get better. And then people are like, well, you know, the only thing is just your stomach, just your abdominal wall. It's just a scarring. It looks kind of weird. I just kept competing. And, um, eventually I, I got a lot of second places leading up to the pro card that eventually I got it. I jumped right into the pro ranks. I had waited so long, so many years, I jumped right into the pro ranks. I placed in the first three pro shows I did. Um, I ended up placing in five pro shows in, I think, a year, year and a half, which was wow. really good. I was trying to make up for lost time. From all right, right. Days, you know, so, yeah, so, man, it all worked out. Awesome. You just mentioned that you had your pro card now, but that took quite a while to get, right? Um, did you feel like you should have gotten that before you did? Um. I did, I want to say somewhere around 16 pro qualifiers. That's a lot. Um, There were some I thought I could have. The the one that I thought I probably should have was 2012. Um, I got second is right when I turned 40. And um, I looked at the pictures and I just legitimately thought I should have won. And... I don't go, I never went by what everybody says because everybody's friends tells them they should win, right? I mean, every person leaves prejudging and their friends tell them you should win. Yeah. So I never really went by that. I was always more of, let me look at the pictures before I think of anything. Because a lot of times people don't look that good backstage and then they get out on stage, man, and things pop. Like they open up they, and they look good and you're like, wow, where'd that come from? And then sometimes you'll see a guy backstage that looks like a beast, but when he gets out on stage, like nothing really happens. So you never really, you can't, I mean, you can and you can't tell backstage. Like you can see who's in shape and who's not in shape, but you can't see like when they start hitting poses, what's happening, what's going on. So I never really, I always want to see the side, side by side shots. Like, let me see how I look next to him. Cause that's really what, where the truth lies. Yeah. But the 2012 show, other than that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I should have won those other ones. I felt, I felt like, even though there were a lot of things that I might have had on other competitors, they also had things on me. Mm-hmm. So you know, they have a smaller waist, they have better aesthetics. So if a judge is looking for those things, and they're going to beat me, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like just going out and man, you should win. I never really felt like that. I always felt like when I was losing, like, okay, I could see the case for that guy. Like, he, that guy looks good. Like, I was not one of the guys that says, oh, you should have beat him or I should have beat him. He looks terrible. Yeah, yeah. I was always like, no, actually, I can see, you know, what the judges saw there. I, I can see that. So I never really had any really bitter feelings towards any of my placings. The only really bitter feelings I had of any show was the Arnold Classic. Um, that was one show where I very clearly should have been in the top five and, um, I wasn't, but other than that, man, I think my placings over the years, I competed over 60 times and I feel like my placings were fair 98% of the time. 
and that's pretty good for a subjective sport, right? So I have no complaints. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, you're, you're very well known now for some of these unique exercises that you do that have gotten you to where you are. Um, you know, there's the Meadows Rose, of course, but there's other variants that you've, you've shown us. And I was wondering when you, because you've kind of talked about how the basics just don't work for some people. When you have these training clients, are you giving them your variants of the exercise or do you have to find unique ways for each client to try to stimulate their muscles best? Well, I don't do, um, like I'm not at a gym, uh, acting as a trainer at the gym all day. Right. I don't do it day to day, but what I do have is I have people come into town. Some of my clients will come into town and that'll give me a chance to see what they're doing, how they're moving and things like that. So I can then better identify, okay, I think this exercise might be a really good exercise for you. Um, but for me to kind of prescribe something that's unique for a person's body, I got to kind of see how they move. And when you have, I call it the trainer's eye. When you have that, when you can see what's going on with somebody, it's pretty easy to do that. Um, but in terms of just like exercise prescriptions, you know, I obviously I've wrote, I sell training programs. I've built over 30, 12 week programs that I sell. They're extremely detailed. Those are meant to be kind of a guideline, but I don't expect, for the thousands of people that have bought them, I don't expect that the way that I that I have built them and put them together to work for 100% of the people. Yeah. What I tell them is like, this is a template. You can see the theories behind each exercise and why I'm doing it. If you find an exercise you think works a little better, then substitute it, change it, make it work for you. But I think 70, 80, 90% of this stuff will work for you. It's just the other 10% where you may need to get, you know, that experience, you know, in your body, things like that. Um, you know, because there's no training program that I've built that works for everybody on the planet. Like, there's no such thing, right? It doesn't exist. But I do think I have a pretty good template. I do think I understand exercise sequencing in a way that most people don't think about. Um, and that really helps longevity. Uh, it helps a number of things. But um but yeah, I, to directly answer your question, it's more of when somebody comes to see me, then I can see, hey, you know what, you might want to do this with this angle or that angle. Gotcha. Um, and I'm glad you brought up how it's just kind of a template because I actually, in 2012, I tried your, like the intermediate routine that you had posted on T Nation um, or like the intermediate. Oh, yeah. 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 And that was actually one of my first introductions to you. And now... Um, and for everybody listening, I have a lot of respect for John, so this isn't meant to be a negative, but I actually was one of those people who didn't seem to respond too great to it. And I don't know if it was the, the volume. I don't really know what it was, but my question was for people who maybe, you know, they're in the 10 or 20% that it doesn't work so well for, what's their next step? So like, where can they go from there to modify it for themselves? Yeah, you know, it kind of depends on what the issue was. You know, some people say the volume is too much. Some people say the volume is too little. Yeah. Um, some people have trouble executing an exercise correctly. And when I see it, like someone will say, well, that exercise doesn't work for me. And I'll say, you know, send a video, like do it on your Instagram story and tag me in the video so I can see you doing it. But then I'll see them. I'm like, oh, I can see why it's not working for you. You're not doing it correctly. Yeah. yeah. So there's, um, but there's a lot of people though that, um, you know, their CNS might be able to may may not be able to handle the the stress that I put on people's bodies. Maybe the volume is too much. And then some people again, they'll say, oh, "I need more volume." I had a message yesterday from a guy saying, "Your chest workouts, I need more volume." And 
man, I, I think they're pretty intense, but this yeah. guy says they're not hard enough or he needs to do more sets, I guess you should say. So I think it depends, to answer your question, depends on what you feel the problem is. Is it that you're not feeling exercises? Are you training the exercise? You're not getting a pump or whatever? Um, or is it you feel fatigued, like you're not recovered until the next workout? Or you just don't even feel like you're stressing a muscle enough? I think you've got to be able to answer those questions. And if it's, for example, a volume question, like you feel like it's too hard, you're doing too much, then I would say, okay, let's pull back on some of the sets. Instead of doing where I say four sets, do three. When I say three, just do two. Or if I say take this set to failure, these three sets total to failure, then maybe only take one of those to failure. So I can kind of adjust. Um, if it's exercises, you know, I can't feel this, I can't feel that. I look at their video and their video looks good. Then I'll say, okay, let me, let's change this exercise. Let's swap this out for something else. So I think it boils down to what's really driving the uh, lack of results. Okay. And if I had to give you one answer on why most people don't get the results, I would say it's more of a factor of their nutrition than I would their training. Not always, certainly not always. But when I really dig, dig into what people are doing many, many times, they don't pay attention to their nutrition as much as they should. And my training programs are not easy. They're very hard, um, and they're meant to be hard. So there's a certain level of nutrition that has to be paired with that. You know, I hear there's, there's people who kind of are looked at as nutrition experts and training experts, and I always felt like you can't be – to be really good, you've got to – in this sport anyway, you've got to be both. The, the nutrition has to complement the kind of training you're doing and vice versa. You know, you can't be eating – um, kind of a low performance type diet and expect high performance in the gym or you can't be eating all these calories and then not even training hard enough to even create any stress to your body create any adaptations right so I always felt like that was most of the time not always but most of the time I always felt like that was one of the issues was just people didn't really have it together on their diets gotcha okay and uh, you know you, you talk about the intensity of the training and you and I, I know you're friends with Scott Stevenson, and I've talked with him for years, a great guy. Um, you and him both incorporate a lot of intensity techniques beyond just straight sets. Yeah. And, you know, we see some of these studies, and I, and I know how you feel about people who quote too many studies, um, but we <laughs> see some of these studies that they'll say, well, you always need full range of motion, or, you know, it should always be like this long of rest or something. So why do you think there's that discrepancy between maybe what these studies say and what the guys like you and Scott and, and most really big guys, you know, they're usually often using some sort of uh, intensity techniques. That you it's a great question, man. It's a great question. And first of all, you have to look at like what, like what Scott or I are suggesting. When I say I'd like to use high intensity techniques, I'm only going to do that probably on the last exercise or the, I'm sorry, the last set of an exercise. And I'm probably only going to do that on two, maybe three exercises. So in the course of the workout, I'm probably only going to do one of those two to three times. So people will see that and they're like, oh, you can't train like that. You can't do all your workout like that. And well, like, well, it's not my whole workout. That's actually only two or three of the 16 sets I did. Right. The other sets are or more straight sets. Um, so first of all, I always tell people that because a lot of people will see a video of something I'm doing or Scotty's doing 
And they'll be like, oh, that's crazy. That's too much. You can't do all your sets like that. I'm like, no, that's not how all the sets are. Right. I just, I'm just showing you the really fun, cool one. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like um, pancakes on Instagram. That's not everything you're eating, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I have one pancake in the morning, probably three times a week. So I have probably three pancakes during a week, but people think I'm eating plates and plates and plates of pancakes all the time. Right. Um, you know, the studies are interesting, but, and, and what I do and what Scotty does is interesting, but at the end of the day, you just kind of got to find out what works for you. Um, there's a lot of contention. I'm friends with a lot of PhDs, a lot of scientists. I just came back from presenting. Scotty and I actually just presented at the Swiss Symposium, which is the, the highest collection. I mean, that's, that's, that's the best of the best there. And you will find the best scientists there. Um, and these guys will tell you, you know, yeah, this is what these six people showed, but there's such a variance. In this study, this guy responded awesome to this many sets. This guy didn't. There's so much inter, you know, there's so much of like personal, the law of, the principle of individuality is is the main thing here. There's there's such an uh, interdependency on so many different factors for people uh, genetically, the, the, how they respond to a diet, how they respond to training. So it's really hard to say things in black and white. Um, I can't sit here and in good conscience say you need to do 16 sets for your chest a week or 10 or 20. I don't know. Maybe it's 10. Maybe it's 20. I don't know. Maybe it's 16 for now and go hard, but then it's only do that for four weeks and then pull back on volume because your body adapts and changes. Those, those are the things you gotta kind of have to think about. And people will see a study and they'll think it's black and white. Okay, well, this study said that I need to do 10 reps, uh, 10 sets or whatever. Um, and that's what they do. And it might work great at first and then it doesn't work anymore. Okay, now what do you do? do you you want to go find another study and do that? Or right, you know, right. how, you, how are you going to adjust? And that's the thing. This is the thing about bodybuilding. This is the thing about training is you have to learn how to adjust. So if you don't know how to adjust, you'll never get anywhere. And, and we all, cause we all hit roadblocks and no matter what you're doing, no matter how good it is or how smart it is, it eventually will quit working and you'll have to figure out, okay, now what do I do? And there's no study that can teach you that. Yeah. Um, that's where it, be, that's where it gets real interesting. And that's where you separate kind of the elite minds um, to the people who don't really know what they're doing. Um, we were just working off a piece of paper. Um, so I don't know, man. I think the studies are great to kind of – I look at a study as it's an answer to a series of questions giving a certain set of circumstances, but then that leads to even more questions, and those questions lead to even more questions. Um, so it's very fascinating. Um, I try to follow everything as close as I can. Dr. Serrano sends me two or three studies every single day to look at. Yeah. And so I've kind of got my eye on the pulse of what's going on out there in the scientific community, but I never forget my roots and that's learning how to adapt or to change your training program based on what's happening. Cause that's where the real magic is. Awesome. And yeah, I've seen you talk before about how, you know, just because there's not a study supporting something yet, or we don't have a ton of studies doesn't mean we should just discard it. Um, and I've said that I think for a while as well. And something I want to bring up to you, uh, that maybe there's a discrepancy there was with fasting and, you know, everybody talks about intermittent fasting now. And I think a few years ago, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think a few years ago, um, 
even without trying it, I think you had been pretty against fasting, but now you're starting to incorporate it. Um, so what made you even want to start incorporating it after you had a pretty strong belief that it was not an effective method? Well, the reason, first of all, I've been misquoted a lot, (laughs) but I will say this. What I did say was fasting is not a great way to gain muscle. Okay. Not eating makes it hard to gain muscle. (laughs) Um, but fasting, I think, is a really interesting thing. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about digestive issues. And in the bodybuilding community, I mean, it is rampant with digestive issues. I mean, like I work with all different kinds of athletes, but bodybuilders are the ones that have all the stomach issues. Yeah. From just power shoving food constantly with no thoughts to digestion, etc. So, um few years back, I thought, you know what, man, you know what might be really good for digestive relief is just don't eat. Logically, let's just don't eat, man. Let's just give your digestive system a break and not eat. And, 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 uh, you know, and I was uneducated in some of the aspects of it. Okay, what's going to happen to muscle? Are you going to lose your muscle? Um, Because there was a time when I thought, yeah, the muscle is just going to melt off your body. And I did a lot of research and I figured out, you know what? You're not going to lose muscle from doing a fast. The fasting, by the way, that I really like is 24-hour fasting. I really like 24-hour fast every 7 to 10 days. So, um, and then the other thing is I'm a big believer in kind of um, fine-tuning your – hang on for one second. Hey, guys. Sure. Guys, I'm on a call. Um, So one of the other things that I really like to stress to people is the importance of insulin sensitivity. And the ability to drive nutrients in the muscle cells and so kind of not in, not in the fat cells. So how do you kind of manage the relative sensitivity of a muscle cell, insulin sensitivity of a muscle cell and a fat cell? And these short fasts are powerful, man. A 24-hour fast, it's amazing. You can do a 24-hour fast, eat a couple meals, and go train and get a pump like you've never got before. Mm. And, I mean um, – I'm not saying that one 24-hour fast will cure all kinds of insulin issues with, with sensitivity, but it seems to be a very good tool, and I would encourage people to try it for yourself. You know, I thought about, well, what's going to get used for energy? Is it going to be protein, and am I going to, you know, burn up amino acids? Well, no. You're going to burn carbohydrates, probably glucose for maybe 24 hours, and maybe dip into some, you know, some some fat, burn it. You know, that's this whole ketone body thing, BHB yeah. salts and all that. So, um uh, long story short is a lot of the things that I I had issues with with fasting, you know, losing your muscle and all that, they turned out to not be true. And um, so that's why you see a little bit – you don't see a little bit. You see a, a very different um, perspective of mine on fasting now because I believe that the one step back will get you two steps forward. And, um, again, I'm more into the 24-hour fast. I, I still have some issues with the intermittent fasting um, because here, here's, the, here's the other thing I'll, I want to share with you. So one of the hard things about being a coach uh, and getting people down to kind of superhuman levels of body fat is the big thing now is people just talk about you just need to be in a caloric deficit. Like that's all that matters. And, yeah, it does matter. But that is – People, a lot of the people in the scientific community say that's all that matters. You just keep pushing calories down. But there's a point where you do that where it's no man's land. Like it's the point of no return. There's no calories left to take out. 
Right. The metabolic rate slows down so much, there's nothing more you can do except literally starve someone. So here's the beauty of fasting. When you don't eat, your, your metabolic rate doesn't slow down. You actually secrete a little bit more adrenal hormones, and your total energy expenditure, expenditure actually goes up a little. You know, adrenaline, noradrenaline, nor, uh, adrenaline, those things actually, get, you might get a little bit of a lift. How much of a lift? Maybe it's maybe it's small, but what we know is your metabolic rate isn't going down. Where so if you work that in someone's diet, if you think about it, okay, the fact that they're not eating for this day, let's say they're eating three thousand calories. Let's say somebody ate three thousand calories a day, so that's twenty one thousand calories for the week. Well, um, if they if you had their calories as low as they could go, that's obviously not that low. But just just roll with me here on the numbers. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't want to take their calories down any lower and you, you put in a 24-hour fast on one of those days, now you just took them down to 18,000 calories and you didn't slow down their metabolic rate. Those other six days, you kept their calories up. You created the deficit by the one day of fasting. So they're still in a deficit without lowering their metabolic rate. I've been doing this with clients for a little over a year now, and it works awesome. And it's more suited toward the people who struggle, who hold on to their body fat a little tighter, and to the people whose metabolic metabolic rate adjusts very quickly to lowering calories. Sometimes you can lower somebody's calories, and then boom, their metabolic rate adjusts so quick they don't really see a lot of change. That's where you get a lot of frustrated people that then quit. Um, and then the, and with intermittent fasting, they're still eating every day. Right. So you know you still you haven't fixed the problem of metabolic rate since they're still maybe they're not eating in the morning, they're not eating till the afternoon, but they're still eating every day. So the metabolic rate still gets lower, and I've had you know hundreds of people come to me over the years, and they say that they give me this same scenario. I was twenty something percent body fat. I got down to fourteen percent body fat using intermittent fasting, and then I got stuck. I couldn't get any leaner. And um, a lot of those people now, what I do is I say, stop the intermittent fasting. Let's work in the twenty four hour fast, and let's bring your calories up a little bit on the other day, so you're actually eating more. Boom. They start getting leaner and harder again. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I love 24-hour fast. Intermittent fasting works great for people's schedules, and there's a there's definitely some health benefits to it. I like it too. I just think in terms of bodybuilding, there's some advantages to the 24-hour fast over the intermittent fast. The intermittent fast, though, I also firmly believe have all kinds of health benefits. Um, and I think just in general, when you're giving your body a break, letting your digestion system rest, I think that's a good thing in general, and that's why I'm a pro. That's why I'm pro fasting now. It's more of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've worked this into many bodybuilders, and I think I'm influencing some of the other coaches now because now it's popping up and everybody's starting to, hey, let's try this 24-hour fasting. Right. And people are saying, like, man, I feel so much better. My stomach feels better. It feels tighter. It feels sucked in better. Um, so I think we're on to something here. I don't have any studies that back me up with 24-hour fasting. What I've had to do was – the research I've done was more on long-term fasting, and I had to look at the results at, at the 24-hour point. And they were, and most of them were looking at maybe like a 72-hour fast. Yeah. So I just looked at it at the 24-hour point. Okay, what was going on up to this point? So there's no studies that have been 24-hour fast in, for, for what I'm looking for. So I've had to kind of create my own scenarios mm. and draw my own conclusions. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. I've done both the 24 hours and then like the 16-8. Um, 
I think they're both great for, like you said, to kind of like give the GI system a little break there. Also, just I know you're big on having a balance with life and bodybuilding. And sometimes when you just don't have to eat all day, you know, it allows you to like, I'm way more productive when I've done a 24 hour fast and just, you know, not having to stop, prep food, cook, eat. It's it just, you absolutely you realize, like, how much time goes into eating that much. Absolutely. And it's funny, man, because all through the years, you know, I've obviously competed a long time and you get this stuff beat into your head. Like every three hours you got to eat. So um, you train your body to get hungry, but you don't really need to eat that much that often. Right. So for, you know, for 30 years, I'm eating every three hours. And when the three hour point passes, I'm getting nervous. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. But now, you know, my kids have football practice. Maybe I won't eat for five hours. You know what? It's okay. It's no big deal. So and you know what? I didn't lose any muscle. I'll just, you know, make the calories up somewhere else. It's not a big deal. So you're 100 percent right. Just living life. Um, it's so much better, man. You know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I kind of get, I got let out of prison, right? Yeah, right, right. So. <laughs> no, I was kind of yeah. a freak about it in high school. And, um, yeah, if we were driving in the car and I knew it would be like three and a half hours by the time I got my food, I started freaking out. You know, I'd be like, we got to get somewhere fast. It was just, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Stress response. I'm sure it was way worse than not eating the calories. So. You got to pull into Wendy's and get a grilled chicken sandwich, <laughs> throw, the, throw the bread out, and then just eat the chicken, the chicken, the piece of chicken. Right, right. right. So, no, um, baconator, Alex. Those things are, <laughs> those baconators are good. Baconators are good. Yeah. I haven't had one in a while, but they are good. I think if I'm making it to Wendy's, I might go with the baconator at this point. <laughs> yeah. So, we'll say hi real quick. Let's see. Hello. Hello. What was the name? Alexander. How you doing, man? Good. All right. Get back to work. Bye. <laughs> uh, so I like to kind of end on an actionable step for people. And I actually had somebody who follows along um, ask a question that they wanted me to ask you. So I just want to make sure I got it right here. Uh, so this is from Charlie Cooper. He said, you know, intermediate lifter, his goal is size. He said, knowing the importance of volume for hypertrophy, what is your opinion of including specific strength phases in his training in order to handle handle higher volume, and how would you program it? So basically, you know, would you ever have a purely strength phase so that you can do more with the hypertrophy work? Well, you know, that's a great question, Charlie. And if you look at how a lot of athletes have built their programs, they start with this higher volume right? And it's lower intensity. And they increase the intensity and lower the volume into this peaking phase. And that's kind of how athletes tailor their, their, um, their training programs. That's how they build their blocks. And for what I do, that's not necessarily the best route. Um, sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't. I don't really, I don't really separate strength and hypertrophy blocks I have a, an exercise that I'm a little bit more focused in on strength. And that's usually the second exercise I do. And then the third exercise I do is a little bit more focused on higher reps and higher volumes uh, and things like that. Um, what I would say is you should always be, you should always have some component of your program where you're trying to get stronger. That should never be taken out. But it's not every exercise that you're doing. And so for me, it's always the second exercise. It's always the incline barbell or it's the squat or something like that where I'm 
trying to get a little better, but you got to realize you're only going to get so strong. You can't get stronger or we'd all squat 5,000 pounds after we trained for 20 years. Um, what you can do with your volume though, is you can kind of build it and taper it. And I do like to do that. So there'll always be a strength component as part of the workout, but the actual volume itself, I build up and then I deload and I start low and I build up again. So it looks like waves. The volume does this and it goes down. Then the volume goes, does that. So my volume is always waving. It, it, it builds up and then it goes down. Um, but I never forget the importance of strength. I've always got repetition numbers. Like let's say it's six reps on that second exercise. I want you to use the heaviest weight you can to get six reps with good form. So if you're truly following that, then you're trying to get stronger in the six rep range. Maybe it's eight reps, but it's always about anywhere from five to eight reps. And it's getting the most reps you can, that rep, whether it's five, six, seven, or eight, it's getting hitting that number with the heaviest weight you can while maintaining good form. I'm a big believer in perfect execution form, particularly on compound movements where the risk, the risk is that you'll get injured. You know, uh, the risk you'll notice is certainly a lot higher. So I would tell Charlie, don't ever, don't ever think that you're not training for strength. Always keep that in, but the volume, build it up, taper it down, build it up and taper it down. Awesome. Great answer. Very comprehensive. So, uh, John, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's very obvious how passionate you are about these topics. And uh, people want to find more about you. You're on Instagram. You're on YouTube. Uh, you have Mountain Dog Diet. Anywhere else people can find your work? That's the main place is Mountain Dog One on Instagram and Mountain Dog One on YouTube, um, which I've been really working hard lately on. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the training uh, programs and my membership website, it's all on MountainDogDiet.com. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks again, John. Yes, sir.